Welcome back to To Think Minimum, the Technology Policy Institute's podcast. Today is Friday, January 22nd, 2021. I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow of the Technology Policy Institute, and I'm joined by Sarah O, oh, Senior Fellow at TPI. Today, we are delighted to have Professor Tom Hazlett. Tom was one of our very first guests back when we launched the podcast, and we're delighted to have him back for an encore performance. He holds the H.H. McCauley Endowed Chair in Economics at Clemson and also serves as the Director of Clemson's Information Economy Project. He studies law and economics, specializing in the information economy. He served as Chief Economist of the FCC and has held faculty positions at UC Davis, Columbia, Wharton, and George Mason. His research has appeared in countless peer-reviewed journals and law reviews. It's countless by me because I haven't counted, um, but it's a large number. He also writes in the popular press with articles in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Reason, The New Republic, The Economist, Slate, and The Financial Times, where he was a columnist on tech policy from 2002 to 2011. His latest book, The Political Spectrum, The Tumultuous Liberation of Wireless Technology, was published in 2017. A couple of other things before we start. Tom is on TPI's board of academic advisors. We're very grateful for that. And Tom is also one of Sarah's advisors and a former boss. Tom, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here, and it's great to see Sarah grew up and was a huge success. It's fantastic. <laughs> and it's all thanks to you. <laughs> so let's start off by talking about what is the biggest spectrum issue of the day, which is the C-band. And is they recently completed the clock auction phase of auction 107, and we're up to about $81 billion for 280 megahertz of this mid-band spectrum. Now, that's being hailed as a huge success. You might have another take on it. <laughs> well, of course I do, but yeah, relative to the alternative, like not having the spectrum reconfigured and made available for productive use and having rights sold, it is a huge success. And in fact, I want people to take notice. I would add that in addition to the 81 billion, there's another 13 billion or so in moving costs. So that the actual demand for this is well over 90, you know, going to a hundred billion dollars. This is now, something north of 40% of the total auction revenues ever brought in since we started this game in 1994. And, you know, money, revenues raised, is not a completely reliable metric. But the very important part of these demands that are registered by bids is that you do get some important understanding of what demand is for the resource in, you know, particular uses. Now, these are very flexible use rights that are being issued. So we have something going for us on the policy side that lots of different business models and applications and network architectures can be constructed with these rights. We know that 5G is very popular due to international equipment markets and standardization. There's a pretty good guess here that the 5G is going to be the direct beneficiary, but there's a lot of flexibility in the use. There's going to be a lot of complementary investment made. And it's not that the government gets to take the money home. In fact, I used to say about these wireless license auctions, the only bad thing about the auctions is that the government gets the money. It's not that the revenues are going to the treasury. It's that we are liberating radio spectrum and there is a huge value there. And, and part of that value is revealed on top of what we're seeing here. There's a consumer surplus value. And we know that that's uh, very likely to be some multiple of what the bids are which future values and profits accruing to the competitors in the marketplace that are trying to get their hands on this bandwidth. So it's a very important sign that we've actually been too conservative. It's proof of concept that a lot of what people, economists, and analysts like myself have been saying, that we have been way too conservative in allowing flexible use 
exclusive rights to be moved into the marketplace and replace the old networks and old configurations of wireless. And that's what we're seeing here, an outpouring of demand for this upgrade in wireless space. So it shows this huge demand for this spectrum. But you, I think, didn't favor using an auction approach for distributing it. Thought we should go straight towards changing the licenses to make them more flexible and tradable and then let the market sort it out. And so how would you, I mean, so does the auction, does the auction say that the auction turned out to, that the results say the auction was the right way to go? Or do you think the very high demand showed that maybe market forces would have been able to sort it out even without an auction? Yeah. So the important point to really grasp here is that market forces did assert themselves. This was not a top-down government project that, in fact, you had a very common situation in the radio spectrum, the political radio spectrum, which is that we have old rules, decades old, that have been rigidly applied and locked in something that seemed state-of-the-art in about 1980 and is completely outmoded today. That's the C-band, 500 megahertz, a big swath of what we call mid-band spectrum, perfectly situated to accommodate vast new services, particularly in the 5G network technology. And they're carting around video services to broadcast stations and networks and cable TV systems on something that really, you know, it was great before there were fiber optic terrestrial networks in a different time and place when we had much coarser technological solutions. So these satellite carriers who were engaged in this business and weren't making very much money at it literally asked for permission to do something more productive with bandwidth. And that's not something that regulators in the U.S. around the world have been really uh, focused on. And in fact, these private interests really came to the commission. They filed a proposal for this in the summer of 2017. And in fact, the computer chip maker Intel collaborated on this. They wanted more spectrum for 5G and other wireless uh, applications. Anyway, so this just sat there for a while. Then, to its credit, the Pi FCC did jump on the bandwagon and actually surprised the market by embracing this proposal. And it went forward that there was going to be a liberalization of the rights and the primary immediate beneficiaries would be the interests that were pushing it. The satellite licensees would invest several billions to upgrade the satellite space, both the Earth stations and the space transmitters, and that they would free up radio spectrum. They wouldn't need anywhere near that 500 megahertz anymore. They could move out and accommodate new mobile services, for example, sell those rights. And of course, these firms wanted to get most of the benefit. They were willing to, of course, at a first step, pay federal taxes on whatever the gains were. There was also some room to make some accommodation in terms of a split of those proceeds, but they wanted to hold their private auction. At the end of the day, that became very controversial. The windfall argument reared up. The fact that these satellite carriers have some foreign ownership properties, that became a political populist war cry. And in the end, the FCC backed way off its liberalization program and basically appropriated the business model of these carriers and said, you know, that's a great idea. Thanks for showing it to us. Now we're going to have this auction. Now, they didn't completely eliminate any right to these proceeds. And in fact, they stuck in some incentive payments to gain the cooperation of these satellite carriers who are making important investments to free up spectrum that's very important for the U.S. economy, for customers and everybody involved in the wireless ecosystem. But the split was nowhere near what, of course, the parties had been proposing initially. 
they feel certainly like they were appropriated. Intelsat, the leading carrier and claimant and pressure group, so to speak, for this policy, a company that originally filed the petition in 2017, they filed for bankruptcy protection before the auction could go through. And the problem there is not that, you know, that I feel sorry for Intelsat stockholders. It's that we want companies to discover and reveal productive opportunities where we can take the underutilized spectrum, expand the rights, and get much more for the American public. Unleash so, innovation, unleash competition, and improve wireless everywhere. So, and, so you're saying, so let me, let me interrupt you for a second. I'm sorry. So you're saying the, the problem with the auction approach was that the result, so it may have gotten the spectrum out into the market more quickly than uh, another approach might have. We don't, we don't know, but it certainly was by FCC standards pretty fast. But it left one of the incumbents bankrupt. And so you're saying that's a disincentive for incumbent users of other spectrum to cooperate with the FCC? Explain a little more further what you mean. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the argument was, and, you know, I was not involved in this proceeding in any way, either for the FCC or for the plenty of the parties. But, you know, the argument was made, certainly by the so-called C-band coalition that formed to push this, that the licensees wanted, you know, they had a whole scheme cooked up here to economize on radio spectrum. And it was going to cost them billions in investments. And they came to the FCC saying, this is what we want to do, but we have to get more flexible, if you will, property rights to the radio spectrum here so that when we make these changes, we can use less spectrum and then we can sell the rights to use the space, the bandwidth we free up with our investments. And of course, the FCC actually gave that a very positive opportunity. It was sort of zipping forward. This is, uh, again, to the benefit of the commission. Uh, I know Intelsat stock went from a market cap of something like a half a billion dollars to something like four and a half billion dollars when it looked like this proceeding was going to go in the spring of 2018. And then you ran into the political buzzsaw in 2019 where both Democrats and Trump Republicans said, this is wrong that companies get this windfall. The government is there to take it. Now, in a legal sense, it is correct that the satellite carriers did not own the flexible use property rights. They had to ask permission to do what they were doing. Their licenses gave them specific authority to deliver these satellite video services. And they wanted expanded, broader scope for what they could do. And that was very efficient. The government has, in essence, ended up granting such rights, but it did not invest those in the carriers, the satellite carriers. It has now sold those to other parties. So the argument was over who got that. The problem with this approach, and you know, there's no question, the FCC gets a lot of points for getting this stuff done quickly, to actually seeing that this was an efficient and pro-consumer, pro growth idea that it would spur US 5G. We're doing something that not every other country is doing. This is an innovation in the US. And they got the auction done in 2020, 2021 now. We haven't quite finished with the assignment phase, but this should free a lot of great spectrum. But it's also clung to the past in the sense that we have sent the signal that you know, firms do come with these kinds of ideas and give the regulators new ways to create excellent opportunities for more productive use of radio waves that the gain for the private parties is highly at risk just for political reasons. And so the problem is that the social gains, the consumer gains, inevitably outweigh by multiples, generally an order of magnitude or more, 
the gains that go to the companies that are providing these services has been shown time and again. That is to say, consumer surplus is the real important factor in the market, much larger than the producer surplus that's being gained by trading around the license value. So as big as this um, 90 or $100 billion for license rights might be, we're talking about trillions of dollars of consumer value that's being unleashed, adding up the present value of future gains. And we want those gains to go forward. We want them to get here fast. There may be a delay in, in the government stepping in. And in this case, the FCC has a good argument that it that operated pretty quickly. It still may have gone slower than a private auction. But, but let me, let me um, press you a little bit more on that, though. So like you said, from an economics perspective, windfalls really don't matter because that's just a pioneer transfer of money. And it's not probably by itself going to affect future investment or incentives or anything like that. But then by the same token, the amount of money that goes to the government, the FCC took it instead of the companies getting it, that also doesn't matter. All that matters is that the real effects are how quickly and how much spectrum is made available and is a, you know, we can use and the incentive effects going forward. And then you're saying that the this has shown that if companies come forward with their ideas about how to free up spectrum and it involves them profiting, then the FCC is not going to like it so that they are not. Therefore, the firms are less likely to come forward with new ideas. But I mean, it's still true that the companies got a lot of money out of this, right? I mean, and so how do you, you know, what makes you so certain that companies still won't come forward? If you've got a losing business model, you can come to the FCC and they might say, all right, well, we're going to auction it, just not let you do this. But that still is a, is a win for the companies, right? Well, yeah, it, yes. And so you, you know, there is, then, then you have, we, you know, we can have an empirical argument about this. I mean, the companies are going to get somewhere around, it looks, you know, 15% or more mm-hmm. of the revenues. And, you know, that certainly that's not nothing. And the incentive part of that is an important piece of it. So we'll see how that plays out. What I've seen in many episodes here is that there has been a windfall argument made that has actually stopped Spectrum from going to the marketplace. I mean, this happened in the early 2000s when we were trying to re-auction the the other C-band, PCS C-band that had been a a disaster at the FCC and the auction conducted in the 1990s. And we were trying to get that out and that halt. This took several years extra because of arguments about windfalls. There was a company called North Point Technologies that developed a new way to use a particular band up at 12 gigahertz. And the FCC thanked them for actually helping to adjust the rules and spending years working with FCC lawyers and engineers on that. And then, then it auctioned off the licenses to use the new business model. And, and in fact, North Point Technologies didn't even participate because they thought that they should be first in line for that. And the FCC actually is in a problematic situation here if it goes to you know full auctions whenever somebody comes up with a good idea and wants more liberal rules because that is going to discourage people. So you say that the transfers don't count. Well, in the very short run, they don't count. They're just from one party to the next. But in a dynamic game, and we're in a dynamic game where we do want the FCC or other parties to discover and inform the FCC about where we can do much better in spectrum allocation, where those monies go makes a big difference. So that's where the argument is. And if the money that is devoted to the incentive payments now is going to do the full tag, you know, certainly not as much of an incentive as the companies that came to petition had in mind. And they, you know, they were very frustrated by that. And, um, but we'll see how that plays out. But there are two sides to that. And when you say, I'm very happy that this has happened and it's revealed how much pent-up demand there is for access to these flexible, exclusive rights to use mid-band spectrum. So I think that that's an important revelation. Are there examples of private overlay auctions that have 
happen outside of the FCC. I think part of the argument is, oh, we don't know what's going to happen. The satellite companies might collude or, you know, it's not transparent. We need the FCC to be a neutral auctioneer. Are there good examples of like what would have happened if they held an auction privately? Well, of course, there's activity all the time. And even in some of these things, it's the FCC can't do its job for example, in the incentive auction, so-called incentive auction, the two-sided, you had the reverse and the forward auction tied into reallocating broadcast television spectrum in 2016-2017. The FCC announced winners to the new 70 megahertz rights. So here you have a 294 megahertz tied up in the 49 TV channels in this very antiquated terrestrial broadcast system, you know, from the 19 literally from the 19, late 1930s to the 19, early 1950s. And so, you know, we're still trying to kind of reallocate that to newer services. And the FCC did talk about overlays back in the National Broadband Plan 2010 as an alternative. It said there would be, you know, as Sarah just brought up, there might be too many transaction costs and so forth. So we're going to take, do this two-sided auction. Well, at the end of the day, less than a quarter of the spectrum was turned around. That's the FCC might say that's because that's all the demand there was. That's that's all the demand that was revealed in the FCC auction. It's, it's I think there's overwhelming evidence and, and some more of it happening in this auction that there was a lot more demand for flexible use exclusive spectrum rights that allow, you know, mobile network expansion. But at any rate, 70 megahertz were peeled off. And when those licenses went out, there was a several year adjustment plan that finished in uh, the summer of 2020 for the TV stations to actually go off the air. But as soon as those rights were out, they became overlay rights. And companies that wanted early access, in particular T-Mobile, immediately started paying TV stations to go dark in their areas. That's an overlay. Now, the FCC could have done that. They could have had a better schedule for that. It would have been efficient. Certainly, when you see these transactions, there are gains from trade from that, and it's efficient all the way around. The FCC couldn't manage it on its own. The transaction costs worked the other way. They had to get the rights out. Now, we can argue about the rest of the system, but the point is the FCC has a categorical view on this, that they've stated, well, there's just too much complexity of the market having auctions. The market has auctions all the time. You can go back to the early 2000s and see that Qualcomm actually did something quite interesting in buying the rights to use Channel 55, the TV channel, that were being liberalized and then sold at auction, and they used those rights. And even when TV stations didn't have to go off the air there, they paid them to go off the air early and they even paid adjacent channel users, TV stations sometimes, to accept some interference so that they could do a new service called MediaFlow, which was a mobile video service that Qualcomm had invented and, and developed and wanted to utilize. At the end of the day, they spent a billion dollars to get the spectrum, to pay TV stations, to launch their service. And it turned out it just wasn't a big economic success. So they turned that around and sold those rights, I believe, to AT&T. It was AT&T or Verizon. Yeah, I think it was AT&T. AT&T. And of course, the rights were used also for video, but a different form of video. That was 4G. And that is exactly the flexibility in the marketplace you want. Overlays were a big part of that. You didn't have to clear out the TV stations. You just gave secondary rights to a high bidder, and then they worked out scores of deals with TV stations all over the country. They actually introduced a service. They tested it when there wasn't sufficient market demand to justify the opportunity cost of taking that spectrum away from an alternative network. Qualcomm just cycled through. So you can see in success and failure, 
the great importance of having flexible rights used in the marketplace and not waiting for regulators at the FCC to do a command and control approach. And so there are lots of examples like that. Certainly AWS in 2006 was largely an overlay issuance. Getting PCS 2G in the 1990s was a great example of not waiting for the government to move out the 4,400 microwave users that were already in the band, but issuing rights, sold at auction, the first big auction of the FCC in 94, 95, and allowing those companies to actually have an overlay that depended on them working out deals and working with the government to move out the incumbents, sometimes with side payments to get those uh, folks moving let's, along. Let's talk that, a little bit about this. Um, let's talk a little more about the dynamic the dynamic effects, which, as you said, are is what really matters. So in the C-band, there's still 228 megahertz left that's, that are still being used in the old, you know, for its original purpose. But now... So 200, now 220 megahertz is what you said? Yeah, 220 of the original 500. With and, the so-called buffer. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the new information that's been revealed is how valuable it is. So here's, so the question is, what would you like to see happen now with that remaining 220 megahertz? And then, of course, your book is all about how, let's say, what you would want to happen doesn't happen because of all the political economy behind it, behind spectrum decisions and allocations. So what would you like to see happen with the 220 megahertz? And what do you think will happen, given all of the factors you write about? Yeah, well... <laughs> Do I want to make a prediction and be proven wrong or just be vague and be able to have uh, plausible deniability? Yeah, so of course, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you've got this problem. You've got it also on the TV band. Now, we're, mm -hmm. let me start there because I have thought about that a little bit. So we went forward on the idea that there are too many transaction costs for the market to reallocate the TV band when it had 49 channels. Well, we peeled off some of it. I said less than a quarter of it, 70 at a 294 megahertz, went to... Um, so-called 600 megahertz auction 2017. And that's being fruitfully utilized now and advertised as uh, providing 5G nationwide. But we've still got 35 channels left. And this is 35 channels that were used to distribute I Love Lucy. And when they were, we didn't, you know, there weren't a lot of people saying how inefficient that was. But today, nobody says that's efficient. It's all going through cable, satellite, and of course, over the top. And when you ask a young person today, did you watch television this week? They said, of course. And they'll start listing out all the Netflix shows they got on their smartphone. So we are keeping Spectrum out of television now by keeping it locked up in those 35 channels. Now, the FCC and the Congress, by the way, in the 2012 authorization for that one-time incentive auction said that there would be no second time. And the FCC wanted to use that as a hook. The idea was that the broadcasters were an endemic holdup. They would never cooperate. They would never sell. And they had to be threatened, essentially. Sell now or forever be condemned to be a broadcast television station. That will be your eternity. That was what the FCC told them. We're not going to do this again. So you better make us a good offer now. Well, of course, we're on the other side of that now. I think it was a bad policy to do it one time and leave all that spectrum there. What do you do now? Well, I'd come right back on top and say, I'm not touching anybody's rights. We'll grandfather the incumbents, but we're going to sell overlays. And for the 35 TV stations, 210 megahertz, divvy them up. You can have three 70 megahertz licenses in every market or nationwide or whatever you want to do. You can have more, you can have less, but you can sell those rights at auction. They have to respect the transmissions of the incumbents. 
But if they make deals with the incumbents, they can use that spectrum for whatever they want. The prices might be low because there's, anyway, it might be high. I don't really care about the prices and neither do you. What we care about and what, you know, what we care about for growth of the economy and consumer welfare is that that spectrum gets used for something more valuable than over-the-air broadcast television done as it was in 1952. And the same with your question on C-band. We've got 200 megahertz there. You've got video being transmitted. Of course, it can be done through fiber optics and other means. It can be done through more efficient use of satellites over time, as we've already seen. Why not issue the overlay rights on the next round and have parties out there that are constantly watching to see what the options are and constantly trying to figure out if there's a way to get coordination by paying people to share that spectrum, to utilize that spectrum, but share the benefits in a more productive way. And we're just always amazed by the deals that emerge and how technologies and business models can adjust to pack more into the radio space. And that's so you you say that the way you say that you say it almost as if it's a rhetorical question. You know, how could we not do this? But other people might hear it as a rhetorical question with the other answer. So but, you know, and in your book, it's all about the political and economic forces that keep that kind of solution from happening. So when you say it, it makes complete sense. And, and it's so much so that you imply that how could anybody have a different answer? Well, and yet <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. So, well, you know, why? Well, Hank, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I like now, read, read your book, Tom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, no I, yeah, but you know, I read all of it. And there are many examples where it has <laughs> happened. By the way, now look at- That's look, true, that's true. Look at auctions 102 and 103. I think 102, it might've been both of them. Anyway, there were subst- these were millimeter wave frequencies that were put out for flexible use by the FCC. And nicely so that they got out there. I think we're leading the world more or less in getting those frequencies out and they are being used for 5G. And of course, there's always a skepticism and is it really, fi- you know, no, it's just let the market experiment, let people risk their own private capital to, you know, let consumers make a choice. We're doing well on that. And in fact, we used overlays. That is to say, there were incumbent rights already in the band. And we wanted to sell rights to sort of reallocate and get all the rights exhaustively assigned. And so we gave credits to the incumbents that they could use those bidding credits to stay where they were being paid for by the, you know, by the new bidders or, you know, sell out or move in the space. And that is an adoption of the overlay. And the the regulators saw that and they've used that. They're continuing to use some overlays. Obviously, as I said, in the incentive auction, we used overlays more than the FCC admits. We also, just in the rights that we issued, there got to be impairments. Okay, impairments connote overlays. That is to say, rights were sold to certain radio spaces that had grandfathered incumbents. And there were some interference issues that the buyer of the license for that particular space had to put up with and could make deals later, maybe to mitigate, you know, pay somebody to use a different technology or to use different spectrum. But the point is the FCC is forced to use overlays just because it's so efficient to put firms in a position where they can negotiate and come up with positive sum deals that the FCC can then rubber stamp and say, you guys are geniuses. That's exactly the way we would have done it if we had imposed our will. You know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, but the FCC does like those kinds of deals to be worked out. So there's a lot of positive momentum there that the FCC has grasped. I certainly think there is much more that can be done. And, you know, when you you ask me this question, and I do talk about, you know, the Milton Friedman story always comes to mind when he allegedly in class saw a student sleeping and threw an eraser and hit the kid in the head and the kid woke up and 
said, I'm sorry, Professor Friedman, I admit I fell asleep. But the answer is reduce the money supply. So, <laughs> so if you think that, you know, you're going to ask me a question about how to reallocate some spectrum, I'm going to come up with a, an overlay approach. It, you know, it, it's an important device. It has been used. It is being used. It will be used in the future. And I think we ought to think of more circumstances where we can, you know, we can push this technology and it, it gets adopted over time and adapted in ways that are either for political or efficient economic reasons are important. And I'm, I think economists and the technicians at the FCC do have an important role in that. So we're running out of time, but before we finish this past week, we lost a couple of friends and colleagues, Peter Huber and Jerry Ellig. And Tom, I know you, you knew both of them. What have your thoughts been on that? Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. And yesterday I just heard Jerry Ellig, who apparently gave no indication of this and died suddenly. He was a uh, of course, um, a very good economist, and he, he served as chief economist uh, just recently at the FCC. He really focused in a very analytical way over many years in cost-benefit analysis of a regulatory effectiveness. And he, when he left the FCC, he went over to work with Susan Dudley at uh, George Washington University and developing systematic analytical methods for seeing how the methods of regulation go forward. Now, the FCC has put in, a, you know, Jerry was a positive part of this, something that I've long advocated, which is a Bureau of Economic Analysis in the generic phrase. But that is to bring better economic analysis to regulatory decision making. Jerry will be greatly missed on the analytical front. And of course, those who knew him, not to mention his, he had a wonderful family, you know, he was just an upbeat, just an engaging personality. And it's impossible to imagine him not here. A couple of years ago, he actually came out to our Aspen conference to talk about the OEA while they were still putting it together. And, you know, that was an interesting talk, but it was also fun having him around. He participated in all the sessions, asking lots of questions and just generally being a fun person to have at the conference, had it a lot. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I always thought, you know, every time I saw Jerry, he always looked younger than I remembered just because he was kind of, you know, he's, he had that, you know, an innocent, almost cherubic attitude about things. And you could have great discussions with him. And he wrote very important and sophisticated papers on important topics. But he did have a very friendly personality that really stood out, you know, in academic circles. You don't see that youthful enthusiasm too much enough. Yeah, you wanted to ask about Peter Huber? Yeah, you just wrote a really nice uh, obituary might not be quite the right word, but a really nice in memoriam of him in, in reason. Well, yeah, thank you. Of course, it's a, you know, a frightful assignment. And I did know Peter Huber for over 30 years. And, you know, he, I have to say, he dazzled all of us with his brilliance. Jokingly, with my wife referred to Peter as the Vulcan. And when she met him years ago, I said, you know, Peter might say something that sounds nuts. Don't think he's wrong. I mean, we're going to have to figure it out later. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, I guarantee you'll be ahead of us. And he, um, he did have an amazing life. He graduated from MIT with a PhD in engineering. They made him a professor immediately, and he got tenure at MIT in engineering when he was 25 years old. And, you know, and then he was number one in his class at Harvard Law School and so forth. And then he quit academia. And he didn't want to be bogged down by an academic assignment or portfolio there. He did many other things, but he became a, a serial visionary and he went from topic to topic. I certainly crossed over with him in telecommunications, but he, he helped reform law by writing about junk science, the use of improper 
academic methods in the courtroom and expert testimony. He, he helped uh, get a federal rule change about the quality and the standards for that. He wrote about energy, environmental policy, and of course, he wrote a treatise on telecommunications law with Mike uh, Kellogg and John Thorne, the first real legal treatise. There had been case books before in law schools to teach telecommunications law. Finally, in 2013, he wrote a wonderful book. We had him down to Clemson to speak about it, called The Cure in the Code. It's a very hopeful and wonderful book about advances in molecular biology and the advance to a cure for terrible maladies like cancer by rewriting our human software. And the frustration of the book is, again, of course, as a policy angle, this is what Huber did. He brought physics and poetry to policy. He pointed out that our whole medical system, from the insurance system to the regulatory system at the Federal Food and Drug Administration, was geared to sort of a different world where we didn't have these customized, tailored solutions. And targeted medicine was a real challenge for us to liberate the ingenuity of the human mind that was advancing rapidly. And he showed how in many situations we had done that with HIV AIDS. We had amazing quick progress by actually changing the regulatory environment in fundamental ways and unleashing new therapies that saved, ended up saving, you know, thousands, even millions internationally. And it's a very hopeful book. And it's a wonderful book. And like all of Peter's writings, you just don't understand how somebody who can master the technical side of it could write with the beauty and the incredible prose. But they're wonderful works. He's left us something. He was, you know, like Lou Gehrig, our great athlete that was stricken by this vile ALS that destroyed his muscles. Peter Huber was a, an incredible genius who got this premature frontal dementia and it attacked his brain. And he spent the last four or five years declining from that. So it was a very, very sad circumstance. But, you know, he, he was an incredible contribution. We, <laughs> we will feel the loss of Peter Huber. And I, I just want to say that I think some of us made a mistake. It just we were so dazzled by the brilliance. He really was a remarkable human being. He was, he had the wonderful grin and the quick laugh. He did not engage in the pettiness of so much of everyday life. And he was always after big thoughts and, and conquered them. And by the way, one of his contributions was to really, he prided himself on clerking after he came out of Harvard Law for Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the DC circuit, then Sandra Day O'Connor, of course, the first female on the Supreme Court. and. <laughs> He respected, they were his heroes, he respected both of those jurists tremendously. He ended up writing a book for girls about the life of Sandra Day O'Connor, and he really did in his career make a point to try to open up the legal profession and push the boundaries there. So in so many dimensions, Peter was a gift to this world, and I was privileged to know him, and we will all miss him. Yeah, so two people that we'll, we'll miss a lot. Thanks for those thoughts, Tom. So we should probably wrap up now. Sorry to end on a sad note, but we are grateful for your time and the fascinating discussion of Spectrum. Look forward to the next time and we can see what's developed since. If we're lucky, a whole lot will have. Well, it's an honor for me and I, I certainly am a fan of the Technology Policy Institute. You know that. And um, you. you've got Sarah there now, so I know that it's upwards and onwards and she's doing great work. And you know, you'll forgive me, Sarah, if I say I'm proud of you, but that's just the way it goes. And anyway, 
TPI's got a lot of fans out here in, in the world and keep doing what you're doing upwards and onwards. Well, thanks, Tom. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Tom. Come on again soon. Thank you.